Hi, this is Adrian Craiglow coming to you from sunny Bradenton, Florida today. I'm known as the Grant Guru. Why? Because I've been in the grant writing game for 501c3 nonprofit charitable organizations in the United States for more than 40 years. So I figured it was about time that I share some tips and tricks. I want to help those who want to start nonprofits get the ball rolling. And I want to help new grant writers and those who've been writing grants for maybe as many years as I have learn about the new trends in grant writing because they are changing rapidly. And I have the advantage of serving as a grant writer and a grant reviewer for many governmental organizations, companies that have foundations, community foundations, United Ways, and civic organizations like Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs. As a matter of fact, I'm the one that writes the grant guidelines for many of the organizations across the country. In addition to that, I come from the perspective of having, right now, more than 100 clients who pay me to write grants to corporate, family, community, and government foundations. So, this podcast Number one is dedicated to those who want to start a 501c3 organization. So let's get started. My first question is, why do you want to start a new charity? I can assure you that if you Google some keywords that are associated with the programs or services that you want to provide, you will find something similar enough in your community your region, your state, or nationally that do something close enough to what you want to do that may prevent you from having to start a brand new organization. Do you know that there are more than 400,000 charities in the United States? That's more than every other country combined. So I encourage people to look around their community first. They may not do things exactly the way you want to do, But I'll bet you if you went into them with a plan about how you would like to bring your program or idea under their umbrella, at least until you get your own 501c3 and get some financial records, and you come in with a plan with a budget and a way to raise the money to cover that budget, they'd be interested in talking to you because it can only expand their program and help empower you to get started quicker and serve the people, places, or things that you're interested in serving more efficiently and effectively. But if you want to start a nonprofit, there's lots of paperwork involved. My first advice to you is use an online service. Now, I do not get compensated by any of them, so I'll just tell you who I use, and that's LegalZoom.com. There are many, many others from which to choose, and I think their rates are all about the same. But when you use an online service to establish your 501c3, it's like using TurboTax for your taxes. They simply don't let you make a mistake. They won't let you go to the next page until you complete the page that you're on correctly. So that helps expedite your application. There are things you will need, and the first thing is money. Yes, it does cost money to start a nonprofit, and yes, it does cost money to use an online service but it will save you so many hours by, instead of trying to do it yourself. There are short forms and long forms, depending on how big you think your organization's going to be. My second piece of advice is go big or go home. Go ahead and do the long form. Think big, dream big. 
manifest it into being. So usually it costs less than $1,000 to start a 501c3 in the United States because you have to pay the online service and of course you have to pay the IRS. And then after you get your 501c3, you'll have to pay the state that you live in to solicit contributions. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But there are some important things that you need to consider when starting an organization and filling out that paperwork. You'll pay your fee and you'll get, in, get all excited about filling it out and then it'll come to, well, what's the name of your organization? Now you've got to pick a name, number one, that nobody else has and LegalZoom or whoever you choose to do it will help you determine whether that name is available. And then make sure that you never, ever call your organization a foundation. Why? Because funders, that's those corporations and family foundations and community foundations and governmental entities that give away money, will think that you give away money instead of need money because foundations give money. They don't get money. So remember that. Make it a name that People will understand what you do when they read your name, especially if you're using some kind of acronym. It's very frustrating, particularly on grant reviewers' parts, and believe me, I know I've been reviewing just as many grants as I've written over the last 40 years, when you just don't understand what an organization does by the name that they're using. But make it short and sweet, too. So pick a name that's not been used, and that'll be the first thing you cross off your list as you fill out your paperwork. Now comes the harder part. You've got to come up with a mission for your organization. Now, when you fill out paperwork to get a 501c3, you can make the mission three pages long if you want to, but don't do it because I want you to be able to write grants when you get your 501c3 letter. And in order to do that, you need to keep your mission statement at 12 words or less. That's because when grants are done online and reviewed online, which by the way is about 88% of the time in 2024, they'll truncate your mission to the first 12 words you write. So you might as well just keep your mission at 12 words or less. Make sure it's generic enough so you don't pigeonhole yourself. Now, if you want to look me up, you'll find my name is spelled very wonky, by the way. It's a good old West Virginia spelling for Adrian, and it's A-D-R-A-I-N-E, last name Craiglow, K-R-E-G-L-O. You'll see that I am the CEO of Volunteer Manatee. That's the Volunteer Center in Manatee County, Florida. That's on the Gulf Coast, about 40 miles south of Tampa, along the Sun Coast, as we call it here in the Bradenton, Sarasota area. Volunteer Manatee's mission is simple. Volunteer Manatee promotes civic engagement throughout Florida. Hey, I haven't pigeonholed myself. Who doesn't want volunteers in their organization? What could I possibly do that that wouldn't promote civic engagement and volunteerism? I could go clean a beach and that's civic engagement and volunteerism. I could go do disaster work, and that's civic engagement and volunteerism. I could run a food pantry, and that's civic engagement and volunteerism. So keep it short, keep it sweet, and keep it simple and broad enough 
so that you can add programs throughout the years and not have to change your mission statement. Next thing you're going to have to do is come up with a board of directors and the minimum amount of people that you need on a board of directors. Because remember, no one owns a nonprofit. A nonprofit is a public entity. Come up with three board members, first of all, that don't share the same last name. Because nepotism is great. Hey, I'll give you a secret. My daughters have been on my board of directors for years, but I've been married a few times, so they have different last names than me. I shouldn't have told that out loud, maybe, but that's okay. But make sure they have different last names. Also, think about who's on your board, because they may be your best friends today, but as your agency grows and gets bigger, remember the board of directors leads the organization. The CEO works for the board. So you might want to be the CEO at some point when you can afford to pay yourself. But until then, make sure you've got trusted individuals on your board that share your vision for why you're starting this organization in the first place. The next thing you're going to have to do is come up with a budget. Now, a budget, to begin with, should always be a one-page Word document that you can turn into PDFs. Do not do Excel spreadsheets if you're starting a nonprofit organization. My goodness. And remember, a budget is simply a working roadmap that can be changed throughout the year whenever your board meets. It just gives you a goal to reach. And revenue should be at the top and expenses at the bottom. How do you know how much it's going to cost to run your organization during the first year? You have absolutely no idea. I know that, you know that, and a prospective funder knows that. But funders want to know that at least you've given it some thought. And the IRS wants to know that you've given it some thought as well before they grant you a 501c3 letter so that you can solicit funds. Where does your revenue come from? Well, I'll give you a hint. As you start to write grants down the line, and that's going to be about a year from the time you apply. I'll get into that in a moment. But funders want to see that you've got a pretty diverse portfolio. They don't want to see all your eggs in one basket. So your budget should not be 100% grants. It should be probably 20% individual donations. 10% special events or fundraisers, and then you can lump the other 70% into grants. Grants either from community, family, or corporate foundations. You will not be eligible for government grants for at least three years after you get your 501c3. And then, of course, your expenses will include salaries. Even though you don't have any money right now to pay anybody, you want to plan to at least have a CEO Maybe they're just part-time, but you want to pay them a fair working wage, and you want to have a program person and perhaps a part-time bookkeeper. So you'll see that your expenses will add up. The perfect start for any nonprofit who hasn't done a program yet should be somewhere between $150,000 and $300,000. Why? Because if it's less than $150,000 and you go for grants, a funder's not going to take you seriously because they know you have a plan to have personnel. And guess what? Funders cannot give you money 
if it's an all-volunteer organization because somebody has to be responsible for the money. So you have to at least plan to have part-time staff. So it's not too hard to come up somewhere between $150,000 and $300,000. Now, if you go over $300,000, that's a red flag too for funders because that means you're overreaching. If you don't have any financial records and you've never helped a soul through this organization or done a thing for the environment that you're planning to do through this organization, then you should never have a budget more than $300,000 during your first year. Now, once you get your paperwork done and you've paid your fees, then it goes off to the IRS. Now comes the waiting game, and it can be so frustrating because you're so anxious to get started. You know there's a critical need in your community, your neighborhood, and you can't do a thing to raise any money for it. But what you can do is start planning, getting your ducks in a row. And don't let an attorney ever tell you that if they are paid a fee, they can expedite your application to the IRS. That's simply not the case. The IRS is busy enough, particularly if you apply between January and April of each year when tax season is upon us. It's going to take usually between six to nine months for them to approve your 501c3 and send you the letter of determination that has the EIN number on it, which is employee identification number, that you will need to apply for all funding in the future. Now, that employee identification number doesn't mean you have to have any paid staff right away. It just means that's the number that is assigned to you forever and always as that nonprofit. And once you get that letter, now it's time to go to your state and look to see what their requirements are for a license to solicit contributions because every state has some kind of requirement. From Florida, it's an annual fee between $75 and $400 a year, and you're assigned a charitable number. And believe me, funders go to checkacharity.org, and you can go to it too, and look at any charity in the United States to see if they're up to date with their fees. But every state has different requirements, so that's going to be on you. Once you have your 501c3, and that solicitation license, you can start to write grants. But while you're waiting, during that six to nine month period, you can do so many things to be prepared to hit the ground running once you do have that letter and that license. And the first thing that you can do is develop that budget. It needs to equal. If it's $150,000 in expenses, then you need to figure out where that $150,000 in revenue is going to come from, or at least what your plan is for it, so that it equals top and bottom. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if the budget actually ended up that way? Nobody's does. Has your budget ever ended up, your personal budget, your, your business budget? Never. But at least it shows that you're trying and you've put a plan into place. And speaking of planning... What exactly is it you want to do? What critical need are you trying to meet in your community that is currently unmet? There's where you can spend your time while you're waiting for that six to nine months. You need to develop program outcome measurements. Now, that's not as scary as it seems, but it needs to tell a story and to collect data from day one on whatever it is you're planning to do. 
to prove to a prospective funder that you are making a difference in someone's life or in the planet. Now here's a fun story, and this is a true story about a little food pantry up in rural Florida, in central Florida, about an hour north of Orlando. A few months ago, I went to visit them as a prospective client, and I said, how can you prove that your food pantry is making a difference in people's lives? And the pastor told me, oh, Adrian, let me tell you, every Sunday after church service, I get hugs from people that tell me if it hadn't been for our food pantry that week, their family wouldn't have eaten. And I said, well, that's wonderful, Reverend, but that's not a program outcome. I said, now, these people, just think of one of them and tell me, how many times a year do you see that one person? And he thought for a minute, and he said, well, there's one guy that comes every week, and he's been coming for three years. I said, guess what, Reverend? You might go to heaven, but you're never going to get any money. And he's pushed back. He goes, what do you mean? I said, now, think about it. Think of it from a funder's perspective. Are you enabling that person or are you empowering that person? Are you giving that person or that family some tools and resources in addition to the food that they might need to get them out of that cycle and circle of poverty? Well, I never thought about that, he said. Well, that's what you've got to think about while you're waiting for your 501c3 license is how are you going to prove that the work you do makes a true difference? My favorite, and it has been for years, is a simple pre- and post-survey where you come up with three questions that you can ask a person before they participate in your program, whether it be an hour seminar that you're doing or a month course or maybe a year-long activity and you're pretty sure that they're not going to know the answers to. But at the end of it, and you ask them the same three questions, they're going to know the answers to it. So what you're looking for is something where you can show a funder that you have an 80 to 90% success rate in your program. So I might ask you today, when starting a 501c3, how long will it take for you to obtain your letter and be on the road to writing grants? Now, before you heard me talk today, you probably would tell me, oh, it'll probably only take six weeks, right? But now you know it's going to take six to nine months and sometimes even longer than that. So if that were one of the pre-posts, then I think I'd have a pretty good rate. And I'll tell you more about pre- and post-surveys and other podcasts that I do. But I just want you to start thinking about that. And you can adjust your pre- and post-survey questions as you move along through your program to get that success rate. Because you never want to have a 100% success rate. Because if you did, guess what? You've already put yourself out of business. You've solved the problem. No need for the charity. And if you have less than an 80% success rate, that doesn't mean that the program that you're planning to do or, or maybe already doing isn't a good one. It's just you're asking the wrong question. So it takes a while to get used to it. So now that I've told you kind of how to start an organization, not to name it a foundation, keep your mission statement at 12 words or less, and file that paperwork, then you can really get started on the real work to prepare yourself 
or as soon as you get that letter to go after some small grants. Small grants meaning that they do not require financial statements. So you're going to have to stay away from banks, insurance companies, and lots of community foundations and united ways until you have at least a couple of years of financial documents. But there are many, many, many corporate, family, and community foundation grants you can write right off the bat. And I'm here to share all of that information with you in my upcoming podcast. And I hope you'll take a look and consider buying my book because I've put all 40 years of whatever I've learned, the good, bad, and the ugly, in my deep dive into grant writing book that's now available on Amazon.com. I appreciate your time today and check out the next podcast. Thanks so much.